Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here for the second part of our Stone Temple Pilots episode. We are here to talk about the album Core, track by track. We've got special guests with us today, Mr. Brad Moore from Louisiana. Brad, how you doing, buddy? Doing great. How are you guys? Doing great. So, Brad, you are friends with James Buckley. Kids are friends. Is that about right? That's correct. So I got to ask this question. Did you tell him about us or did he tell you about us? He told me about y'all. That's nice. That is awesome. He actually posted something, I think, on his uh, Facebook page. And I was like, hmm, 80s, 90s, that sounds pretty good. I'll check it out. Good, good, good. Well, we got together and did our Motley Crue episode and our White Snake episode. Jason pointed out that you guys are our biggest and longest Patreon subscribers. And I said, I bet they're going to love to be called the biggest and the longest ones we've got. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, I'm excited to dive into this. This is an album that was released on September 29th, 1992, as well as Alice in Chains. Album being released the same day. They both hit the record stores at the exact same time. Brad, what's your relationship with these two albums i had already known about allison chains just from facelift you know that was just a really good album and you know some friends and i had kind of got in once they got on the ground floor of the grunge thing but we'd gone to see pearl jam with soundguard little dive bar in dallas called the bronco bowl renovated bowling alley i mean it looked like something that should be in a grunge video i mean there was like kegs in the corner that you could go and buy your beer if you're old enough so we got into all that kind of music i'd already known about allison chains but i had a buddy of mine two friends actually they worked at our local record store called hastings books and records and i was in there one day after work you know, for all you kids out there, that's the Spotify of my age was going right. to the record store and actually thumbing through everything. My buddy was talking to me and I just heard this music playing in the background and it was actually the intro to Dead and Bloated. You know, uh-huh. you could hear the, the megaphone and uh, which I found out later is actually not a megaphone. But um, I was listening to it. I was like, who are these guys, Chris? And he's like, this is Stone Temple Pilots. I'm like, who? And he said, Stone Temple Pilots, it's a you know, new group. We just got it in like yesterday. I'm like, OK, well, I'm going to walk around a little bit. So I passed him again. I was on the third song, which I believe was Wicked Garden. And I was like, do you still have some of this here? And he's like, yeah, we got like four copies left. I said, I'm going to go check out now and buy one. Immediately came probably my favorite album I had in my collection at the time. Don't think I bought Dirt that same day because I hadn't heard all of it yet, but uh, it wasn't long after. So you're telling me you bought Core on day one? If it was the same day they got it in, I don't know if they got it in that day, but I, I had heard three songs just browsing through the record store, and that's when I bought it. That's really cool. Yeah, I wore, I, I don't know if I mentioned this the last episode, but I wore this album out. Like, I listened to this album over and over and if you talk to anybody I worked with in my early days of waiting tables at TGI Fridays, they'd be like, that guy sang that dead gum, dead and bloated song <laughs> every time in the kitchen. But yeah, I actually, you know, I saw Scott Weiland play solo, I guess it's been about five years ago now, and here in Monroe. He's been dead for seven, so that would have been a really... Oh, well, I may be off on that, so sorry. <laughs> You might have to edit that part out later. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> the, this is the time of life that the days are long, but the years are short, my friend. That's right. So you saw but, yeah. it in, in like 2015 or whatever? How do you yes. look? At, at the time, good. I mean, we were, it was a small place, a small bar. And I mean, we were actually kind of off the side there and he walked right up within five feet of me. And I was just looking, I was like, man, he's right there. Looked good. Sounded good. There was a point in the show where he missed some words. I knew the lyrics too. I think it was a Velvet Revolver song. It was still, it was a great show. I mean, I felt like I saw both those bands in the same night. I think he died less than a year after that. All right. So before we dive in track by track, let's talk about the album cover. 
This one has like a, she's supposed to be like Eve from the Garden of Eden. Yeah, that's the, the title of the album is Core and the idea is the core of the forbidden fruit. Yes. So she's like presenting this gigantic apple and she's kind of blurry. And, and I told you that the logo for Stone Temple Pilots looked like an 11th grader made it at lunchtime on their high school break. I would say it's skater-ish. It's a very uh, lo-fi title is probably a good way to put it. So <laughs> you're not a big fan. I, I, can tell. <laughs> I like the album. But the album cover is not good in my opinion. Okay. So All right. you like the girl buried in the desert? Better? Yes. The naked girl. Yes. <laughs> so once again, this album was released September 29th, 1992. That's the same day as the House of Chains album, Dirt. This has gone on to go eight times platinum. It just crossed that mark in December of 2021, I believe. So big sales for this album. It's their biggest selling album of all time. I told D that when you signed up for college classes, they handed it out with your schedule because everybody <laughs> at college had this album. It was just on play nonstop in the 92, 93 era for me anyway. So let's go back to that day. Let's go back to September 29th, September 30th. Brad has just gotten his CD from Hastings Books and Music. He puts it in his car and the first song to play is Dead and Bloated. Okay, banger right out of the gate. You got that great little gravelly, weird voice rap thing at the beginning. Brad, you mentioned before that it sounds like he's using a megaphone, but he's not using a megaphone. But I've seen him on stage, and he does use a megaphone. Right. For the album itself, to get that sound, you didn't use a megaphone. You just used your the proficiency of your producer to produce that sound. And what I love about the beginning of this is it's so quiet because you turn it up and you're like, this CD must be quiet. And you turn it up and you turn it up to you can hear the megaphone voice. And then all of a sudden it slams you in the freaking face with that bow, bow. Yep. According to Robert DeLeo, he said that when they recorded this, it is actually Scott singing into Dean's guitar pickup. He's singing nice. into the pickup. Yep. I saw the video of him doing that. It's really cool. So his face is right there. And they made a comment. I thought you might know what he's talking about. They say, are you ready, Fellini? His face is right there, and they say, are you ready, Fellini? He's like, let's do this. And his face is right there. <laughs> I think it's cool. Eric talks about how when they recorded this, they all sat in a circle with the drum kick just off to the right. They faced each other. They got pumped up like football players, and they played it. He said they got it on the first take. What you hear on the album is one take. That's amazing. Yeah, they recorded this whole album in only three weeks. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy you fast. Produce one of the greatest albums of all time, three 
weeks. So I heard him talk about this. The lyrics on this are weird. What's this song about? What are we talking about here? What's dead and bloated? Scott Weiland said that this was more kind of like a stream of consciousness, just words that he thought sounded cool. Yeah, one of the things I read, it was mostly about possibly not having a lot of life experience and kind of setting, watching things go by. I think all of STP lyrics, I mean, and I thought this from back when I very first started listening to them, they have to mean something different to everybody who listens to them because there's not a narrative that goes along. Like you're not getting, you know, a story like you get in a Billy Joel song. You're not getting, uh, you know, a lover's poem to another lover like you get in so many songs. These are songs that are very much poetry in an abstract kind of way. You know, you mentioned in our last episode that these guys were working across the street from each other. Dean was working in a guitar shop at the time. And Scott, at least at that point, didn't play an instrument. And so Scott would come over when he'd get a song in his head. And that's what happened on this one. He walks over and he's like, it goes... Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> and and Dean would get a guitar off and he'd play the lick and he'd go, yes, yes, that's it. That's how it goes. And that's how the song came into being. Yep. They were telling Eric Kretz about it and they were sitting around a Mexican restaurant and having some enchiladas and they were doing the beat. He started hitting the, the table to <laughs> drum beats. Who knows what the wait staff was probably thinking at that time. It's very interesting to see how all that stuff comes together. They use the term a lot that they Frankenstein a lot of these songs together. Right. This is without question my favorite song on the album, and it was never released as a single. This song to me is just all kinds of awesome. It makes you feel like you're 10 feet tall when you're walking around listening to it on your headphones. It's gotten plenty of play. It's gotten plenty of radio play because sure. of that. But it's just interesting to me that they never decided to release this one as a single. I think it's interesting, too, when they toured with Linkin Park, that Chester Bennington would come on stage and sing this with them. And then later he became the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. Another tragic story to tell a little bit later on. Golly. It's a perfect opening track. It just grabs you and you're like, I want to hear what else is on here. So that brings us to song number two, which was their first single off of this album, a song called Sex Type Thing. Another banger, man, right out of the gate. This one grabs me. I like this one better than Dead Bloated. I am fully invested at song number two. Yeah, if you're if you're working after this at the gym, this one will keep you going. Yeah, that's it right. It flows so well from Dead and Bloated into Sex Type Thing. You just, it doesn't miss a beat. It kicks you right in the groin, right, <laughs> right after the first kicker in the groin. You know what I really like about this song? Tell me. It's about rape. Well, that is a thing <laughs> We all love date rape, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can remember listening to this, and I'm like, this really seems like a like a date raper guy. This is this is a guy who's going to be abusive. I I still love it, but it just surely it's not what it's about. Right. So it is actually about rape. It's from the rapist point of view. Yeah. But it's meant to sort of cast that light and say this is terrible behavior. This should not happen ever. I mean, Scott was very protective of women. Eric Kretz would say anytime they went to a bar, good chance Scott's getting in a fight with somebody because of the way they treated women. But he decided to put himself 
in that guy's perspective, right? You know, sit from that guy's point of view. And we've had we've had so many songs that are like that, that you it's not the point of view of the particular singer. It's I'm going to play a part here and write the words that come into my head. And that's what you get. Unfortunately, I think there were a lot of folks since this was the very first single off of a debut album that didn't really get that about the band whenever this song first came out. This reached number 23 on the U.S. Hot Tracks. Like you said, it's their first single. You know who directed this video? Josh Taft. Josh Taft from Pearl Jam. Josh Taft from Alice in Chains. It's a rock concert, Josh. <laughs> yes. Go back and look at any of, I mean, he directed Alice in Chains Wood. He directed Stone Temple Pilots Plush, Pearl Jam Alive, Ocean's Even Flow. This guy was a, a big grunge director at the time. Gets called out by Eddie Vedder on the Alive video. Yeah, this is one of those that uh, I think unfairly drew comparisons between Scott and Eddie and saying that he was just kind of copying Eddie using that Jarl that Eddie Vedder was famous for. And, you know, if you listen to any uh, Stone Temple Pilots or Velvet Revolver or even Scott Weiland's, you know, solo stuff, he can sing in so many different keys and registers. That's just one of many things that he can do. But most of their songs, you know, he does not go back to that as much as people accused him of doing. He was far more of a dynamic singer than Eddie Vedder ever thought about being, in my opinion. Wow. Yeah, it was a different style. He had more of a, a Mick Jagger dance around kind of style, whereas Eddie Vedder was growling or climbing the rafters. The <laughs> yes. video on this one, they're in a dungeon. I mean, to go along with that kind of weird rapist mentality, it's, it's these girls in a dungeon and Scott has bleached blonde hair in this. Yeah. And I can remember seeing this and then seeing the video for Plush, and I'm like, is this the same dude? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. He actually wears, like, a dress and, like, white gloves and lipstick sometimes when he performs this song so that people don't think he's endorsing rape. One more thing. This traditionally has been a good closer, like a good concert closer for Stone Temple Pilots. Well, we cannot leave the song without mentioning our long friend and guy that if he comes up, we just can't avoid it. Mr. Weird Al Yankovic covered part of this song what? in his The Alternative Polka of the Bad Hair Day album. <laughs> check that one out. Can we listen to that right here, please? That is fantastic. Yeah. Love it. What are we going to cover Weird Al? Well, he's got that movie coming out. We should do an episode on the new Weird Al we movie. absolutely should do an episode on the Weird Al movie. All right. I'm, he, he's actually coming to Shreveport very soon. I just got an email on that. He's, he's on tour right now. Mark it down, man. This is another one of those songs. He and I had this conversation last week. They do a bad job of naming their songs, in my opinion, because <laughs> nowhere in the song does it say sex type thing. And so right. people get confused about which song is this, you know, because the chorus doesn't really go with the title. And This is the I am, I am, I am song. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next song is called Wicked Garden. Okay, for me, this is the third song in a row that has gotten better 
than the one before. Wow. We're, we're, we're ramping up. The music here is written by the DeLeo brothers, and it's kicks butt right out of the gate again. And you've got a little different style of the vocals with Scott, who wrote the lyrics to this song. I and he's, I think he's really bringing it in with this. What's this song about? This song is about people allowing their innocence and purity to be lost from their lives. No, that's wrong. And that is a quote from Mr. Skywalker. No, he's lying. Okay, what's it about? This song is about sex. <laughs> Heroin. Well, that might be a way that you lose your innocence and your purity. Listen, this song is I Want to Run Through Your Wicked Garden. Uh-huh. This is I Want to Bang Your Brains Out. What? You can't say that yes. on the radio? Uh, this is a PG-13. Bang <laughs> your brains out. <laughs> Brad, what do you think about this one? What I've heard is it's about heroin, and it's about describing the temptations that come along with the stardom, and you kind of lose your innocence, and you run through that wicked garden, and there's no turning back at that point. I'm, I'm saying sex. Whatever loss of innocence you might have about this song, it was one of the songs that they had on their Mighty Joe Young demo in 1990. They performed this one on MTV Unplugged in 1993, which was another fantastic unplugged set. Man, if you don't remember, if you sit in that big old rocking chair, what a great unplugged uh, show that one was. And then they also did it in 93 on the Dave Letterman show. I love this song. I think it used to be on a car commercial as well. Jason, despite the fact that you think that this song is better than the previous two songs. Yes. It also was not released as a single. It was a radio promo and it hit the charts because of that, but it is it has never been released as a single. Once again, whoever's in charge of choosing singles should be fired. When these guys got together to make this album, they wanted to do what their rock heroes had done back in the 70s. They wanted to do what Zeppelin had done. They wanted to do what the Beatles had done which was make an album that is good from beginning to end. Not an album that's got two or three, you know, singles, chart toppers, and the rest is filler. They want something that the start to the finish, you are going to want to listen to every single song. Well, so far they're nailing it. They are. I'm with you on this one, Jason. I think it's out of the first three, it's the best of the first three songs on the album. So this one reached number 11 on the U.S. mainstream rock tracks, even though it wasn't released as a single. Ah, friggin' love this song. Moving on to a song called No Memory. So right after three kick butt songs, we get a song that gets faded in. Like it's almost as if he's been playing for a while and we kind of walk into the room with him. And it's a very mysterious, kind of almost ominous guitar sound going on. Do you know the story behind this one, Brad? Well, I know that um, the producer of this album was Brendan O'Brien and he had come back to them and said, look, this album's come together, but we need something else. And so they kind of just threw it together and when they were playing it, they're like, you know what? This would be a great segue into the song Sin. And so they kind of put it in there and it just kind of, you know, just streams in there perfectly. And it was a great idea, but it was the song they just kind of came up with at the last minute. They nailed it. It was perfect segue into that song. Yeah, I think when I listened to this, I totally just thought it was the introduction to Sin. I didn't think it was a separate song. This was written when Dean and Scott were living together, and he used to play it for Scott to kind of get him in that somber mood, ready to do something cool vocally. Well, it's a really short song. It's only super minute, short. Only a minute and 20 seconds long, but it takes us right into sin. 
This is another great one, man. I'm, I'm on board. Yeah. The guitar sound that they have is the same. You can tell that this is an album where they're not, they're not doing a variety of different musical sounds, but the style is distinct. Each song is different. And this one, again, you give us this nice little kind of quiet lull us into calm and then jump right back in with a thumping kicker. Yeah. So Robert DeLeo was a big Rush fan and more particularly was a big fan of Alex Lifeson. And so that segue from No Memory back into Sin was very Russia inspired and according to him. They go back and Dean talks about too that it was a very simple chord and he hadn't really ever played it, but it sounded so good and it was so easy that he brought it back in again, you know, later on on Tiny Music and uh, Meat Plow on Vaseline. And uh, said it just it was so easy and it worked in so many places that he used it again and again. Okay, I got a story for you on this one. You ready for this? On Sin, yep. the day, like the day after they wrote this, they had a concert where Atlantic A&R man Tom Carrollman came to see them play a small club in LA. And they were a little bit bummed out because there was only like 20 or 30 people in the entire club. And when the A&R man is coming down to see you, you want the place to be packed and hopping and all that stuff. And so they opened with this song, Sin. They didn't have any of the lyrics. And so they right. it was, kind of an instrumental beginning to that concert. Got it kicked off with a bang and the the NR guy Tom really really thought it was great. I have no idea what this song is about. I mean, I'm looking at the lyrics, I'm reading the lyrics, and I've read them multiple times, and I still don't know what this song is about. Is the word sin in there anywhere? No. Yes. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Down you go, suffer long. Down you go, sin make me strong. Hey, here's something I do know about Scott Weiland. He was raised Catholic. Of course, you're taught about sin very much when you go to Catholic church, or any church for that matter. I also know he's a huge Notre Dame football fan, right? As most young Catholic boys tend to be. He went as far in 2007 to write a handwritten letter to Charlie Weiss, who was the head coach at the time, encouraging him not to leave Notre Dame, which I thought was funny for a rock star to be a huge football fan. My brother-in-law was actually on that coaching staff. Really? Really? He was assistant strength coach. There's at least an odds-on chance that Scott Weiland had heard your brother-in-law's name. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) We did get to go up there once for a game. That That was a pretty cool experience. Cool. Moving on to the next song on the album. This song is a song called Naked Sunday. So you don't have a megaphone here, but you definitely have an interesting double masking voice thing going on here where it's him singing, but there's like this basified or lower pitch, almost growly kind of voice also saying the lyrics that he's singing almost like a demon, if you will. Basified? Basified, that's a word. Okay. Yeah. A basified demon. I like it. It's a basified demon. Cool. Okay. So Naked Sunday, again, lousy title because the words never appear anywhere in the song. Yeah, but I mean, it's it, the meaning is pretty clear. I mean, this is about this is about religious hypocrisy and the church trying to put people in a corner and telling them how to live and his feelings and thoughts about that not being the right thing. Okay. And he even does his little preacher bit in the middle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, turn the other cheek aside. As good of a Catholic boy as he might have been, he 
it was not too much into the uh, into church at that point. I did hear that this song came very late in the recording process. There's two chords involved, and when they played it, everybody jumped in, and it became a real team effort. Eric Kretz talks about how he has really fond memories of making this, you know, making this song. This was also the song that they played when they played it in the 90s. This would create the mosh pit. You and I have talked before. I'm not a mosh pit guy. Yeah. You are. Oh, I totally did it. I did it all the time. Oh, I'm not either. <laughs> yeah. You guys I'll are, stand back and watch. I, I like listening. I like rocking out. I don't like getting punched and pushed and shoved. We don't really punch each other. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm talking like I did this yesterday. I haven't done this since I was a teenager, but no, it's just, it's a pushing and a shoving, but it's all like in fun. Okay. Having fun. All right. Wrestling match. Sounds good. Sounds good. Also on this one, when they cut the demo, like they came in at midnight to start the recording process. And like you said, this took three weeks right so you're doing a couple a night you know you're yeah. working a lot and so at five o'clock in the morning everybody's kind of a little sleepy and tired and not on their game but they said when the vocals hit it energized everybody and all of a sudden it's like sleep i'm not tired and they were all kind of pumping and, and jumping at that all right so hit stop on your tape player kick it out Flip it over. Dude, it's the 90s. <laughs> uh, I still had a tape player in my car. Did you? See, there <laughs> yes, you go. Are you telling me that in Hastings, you got the tape? You didn't get the CD? No. No, I got the CD. I took it home and I dubbed it onto a blank and kept that in my car. Now that I think about it, I think my best friend bought dirt. We used to not ever buy the same CDs and we would take them to my house and copy them. And so that way we all had always had a copy of everything the other one had. Oh, yeah. I remember those days. Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. Let's pretend we have the tape. Go ahead. All right. So back in 92, when a lot of people still had tapes, <laughs> hit stop on your tape player, kick it out, flip it over for side two, and we start off with a song. Forward yesterday makes me want to stay. What they said was real makes me want to steal. I love the way this starts off. You've got the acoustic guitar, it's crisp, it's beautiful, it's you don't have an over chorus part to it. It's just, a, it's like the guys there with you playing the guitar. And then he comes in with that drum intro and it's just, it's a sweet, sad, beautiful beginning. I love it. I heard him talk about this song. They say it's not rock. Take time with a wounded hand Cause it likes to heal Take time with a it's not country. It's right down the middle. He said that they were influenced by like 70s music. That included, of course, Led Zeppelin, but also Peter Frampton, Jim Croce, John Denver, Fleetwood Mac. Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. So yep. this is a sort of a country rock feel. This was one of those songs that kind of goes back to how versatile they were and how versatile Scott's voice was as well. I mean, they could throw out the hard, you know, heavy songs and they come back to this and make it look like this was their wheelhouse. And this is what they were really, really good at. The truth was they were good at all of it. And I mean, it was totally different than anything they'd been on the album so far, but it's one of the greatest songs that they ever did.
I was telling Dee that back in the days of LimeWire and Napster and stuff like that, that this was popularly referred to on those platforms as half the man I used to be by Nirvana. Wow. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, now I'm going to throw this out there. This song, I got to say, the altar boy in him is coming out. I think that this might be, there's some Jesus lyrics here. Okay. So, take time with a wounded hand because it likes to heal. You with me? I, I can see how you could draw a religious uh, allegory there. I'm not sure that that's how I meant it, but, oh. but it could be. So, he... He did an interview with Song Facts just the year before he died, and he said, that's just the idea of being a young person somewhere, caught between still being a kid and becoming a young man. It's that youth apathy, that second-guessing yourself, not feeling like you fit in. I don't know if Jesus is in this song or not. Wounded hand. I don't know. Well, it likes to feel. Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, I, I do think it's interesting, though, that they actually removed the bridge from this song. Yeah. I would like to hear the original version, uh -huh. but it made it flow better, according to them. They released it in 93 as a promotional single that had different vocal takes. I don't know if it had the, a different bridge or not. But let me just say this. There's a part right in the middle where it basically goes back to the intro guitar bit. Yeah. And it's my favorite bass line on this whole CD or tape or album. The da na 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 na. I just I love the way that he walks it down. Like here we go again. We're going to start right back over. And I think that has to be where that bridge would have been. But I love that they just walked right back to the beginning. Brad, thoughts? Yeah, this one was actually written in the back seat of a car, Robert's car, when they worked across the street from each other. Just sat there right behind the guitar shop, hung out and wrote the song. We talked about that in our last episode. I think that's awesome. I would love to go to parking spot, row three, <laughs> section seven, and find that spot and say, man, this song was written right here. That's cool. I do think it's funny. They ate at Cheesecake Factory before they recorded this song. And when they came back, I guess Scott had laid out all these candles and had candles. The candles kind of set the mood. And once again, they sat in a circle, Tracked it live, got it on the first tank. So, video for this song. So, you guys know who Gus Van Zandt is? No. Directed Goodwill Hunting. Whoa! Directed Milk. I mean, he's pretty prominent guy. He directed a version of this video, but apparently it got shelved because it had too much drug and sexual references. Interesting. Did a second video. The director was Graham Joyce. Don't know anything that they've done, but I'd be interested to see, to see that Gus Van Zandt version of this video. Speaking of, do you remember the last video that we discussed that was banned from MTV? Uh, we did one when we did our Frankie Goes to Hollywood Relax uh, One Hit Wonder episode, but that was just for the Patreon. That was just for the Patreon. Something. You're All I Need by Motley Crue, the song mm. written in response to Jack Wagner. Soap opera star Jack Wagner. Right, and, and apparently looked like for a young Scott Wyland, yeah. Scott Wyland, yes. <laughs> okay, what do you think? We done with this one? So Robert, you said they wrote in the back of the car. He said about this song, he said, musically speaking, I was thinking about a song along the lines of Heart of Gold by Neil Young, which is in the key of D minor, the saddest key of all. Scott was thinking about the lyrics, and at that time in our lives, we were struggling very much. What Scott was writing about was a real-life situation. Also about me, the thing about the gun. Creep is a very demeaning word, and it was one of those instances where we looked at ourselves and looked in the mirror. 
All right, moving on to the next song in the album called Piece of Pie. On the second song of side two and we have had slow songs we've had fast songs we've had songs that i know what they're about we've had songs that i don't know what they're about but we have not yet had a skipper <laughs> this is good song after good song after great song after great song it's amazing there's been no bad song yet None of these would I have skipped so far. Including this one? Including this one. It's kicking my butt. Okay. I love it. I talked to James earlier and I told him the same thing I told you. I don't know which way I'm going to vote on this one because I listened to this entire album on the way to work. I listened to Dirt just the other day and there's no songs on either one of these albums that I ever skipped. I'm in that same boat. I really am. Yeah. This is not a skipper, but this is not, it's not a 10. Oh, you don't like this? It's okay. You're trying to be nice, but you don't like this song. It's okay. Just say it. It's okay. No, I like what he does vocally. I mean, he's really getting after it. Like, he's really leaning on those vocals and it blows me away, but it's not the best song in the album. We're about to talk about the best song in the album, but this ain't it. So you mentioned Piece of Pie in our last episode. What was coming about that? Yeah, so we were talking about the early version of Stone Temple Pilots where Scott yeah. Weiland had a few childhood friends in the band who weren't just quite up to snuff. And so they called Dean to come in and kind of help him out on this particular song. The, the guy that they had in place couldn't do the solo very well. They brought in Dean. Of course, Dean kills it. And they all kind of look at each other and they realize Dean's going to come and this guy's got to go. And, and he saw the writing on the wall and it has since forgiven him and, you know, felt bad. That would be hard to have been in Stone Temple Pilots. And then all of a sudden you realize I'm not very good. Well, we should listen to that solo. Like you said, that he was just a he was a rhythm guitar player and he didn't really have solos in it. Like you said, they patched things up. So. It only cost him millions of dollars. Why be bitter? <laughs> I'm sure working in Safeway is just as good. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> By the way, this song, Piece of Pie, was cobbled together from some earlier pieces of a song called Only Dying, which you can find on the 30th anniversary of Court. Awesome. All right. 25th anniversary? On the 25th anniversary of course. Because we haven't hit the 30th anniversary until exactly. 29th of this month. Thank you for your correction. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So can we move on to the best song on the album? I don't think we're ready to go yet. I think we should listen to Peace of Eye a little bit more. No, let's move on to the best <laughs> song on the album. So they've done a very nice thing for you, Jason. They've taken the song that you don't really care that much about and they put it right between an awesome song at the beginning and what's the name of this song that's coming up again? I can't remember. This song is called Plush.
this song is the song that everybody was like, oh, this is that Pearl Jam sound band. And I can totally hear it. It's got that same kind of feel, but man, it kicks my butt every time. We covered this in my band. I loved it. I still love it. It is great. Hey, summer of 93. It, it may be the top down, turn it up song of that summer. So for the guys out there who heard this and thought, oh, this is just a copy of a Pearl Jam style or whatever, this is the one song that Eric Kretz gets a lyrics credit on. Scott Weiland had done the lyrics for pretty much all of them. We mentioned in Creep that Weiland and Robert did the lyrics on that one. But this song, they wrote the lyrics to this song while they were both naked in a hot tub. <laughs> Back when they were still Mighty Joe Young, before they had signed with Atlantic Records, and before, I might add, Pearl Jam was a thing. They wrote this song, Naked in the Hot Tub. Yeah, about a girl and smelling the dogs and wearing the finders. What the heck is this song about? told you, these songs are very abstract. So I did hear a story that this is loosely based on a story that they had heard about where a girl was kidnapped, killed, and they actually had to get the dogs to find her. I guess the dogs began to smell her. I wrote a song about it. I'd like to hear it. Here it goes. <laughs> I do know that they said in somewhere that I read, I can't find it right now, but Scott liked to use words that had a feel to them. It's also how I came up with the name Velvet Revolver. Plush was not something that sounded good. It sounded like you could, could feel the word. If they were naked in the hot tub, you probably saw Eric's push. <laughs> or his Velvet Revolver. <laughs> well played. So we got to talk about how you know, because of the success of sex type thing, they were invited to come on Headbangers Ball. On December 5th, 1992, they played an acoustic version of Plush. This is a song called Plush. Awesome. In fact, they wanted to, the record company wanted to release it as a single. They actually kind of bristled at that. They didn't want this to become the plush album, but the song right. was freaking good. I It was on radio all the time. I, I, yeah, I remember all the time. This is, this is the yeah. one that my girlfriend at the time said, oh, just this one, okay. Because they dropped it about two, 
notes whenever they played it live. Record company actually wanted this to be their first sync. They had somehow negotiated full control of the creative process. They said, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to stick it all the way back here at nine. So it doesn't define us as that song. They knew it was going to be good. They didn't know it was going to be that good, but they knew it was going to be good, but they didn't want it to overshadow everything else they had already done. It turned out to be a brilliant move. Okay. Well, yes, it turned out to be a brilliant move. But for me, if I'm a record executive, I'm like, guys, this is the best song on the album. Let's come strong right out of the gate. So I'm spiking my football. This is the one. It's the pinnacle song of the album. Well, I do like Radio Friend. And well, they don't have a power ballad for me on it, so I gotta hang my hat on this one. Right. Well, and this one in nineteen ninety four for best hard rock song. So good, man. So it belongs on Headbanger's Ball, man. I guess. I guess. By the way, I saw something that said that this was like the fourth most played song of the nineties. I I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. Like 133,000 spins wow. as of 2019. This is the song. So I've got a handful. I've got like a Kathy playlist, right? My wife's name is Kathy. <laughs> Anytime I want fun Kathy to come out, I play Motown Philly by Boyz II Men. I play This Is How We Do It by Montel Jordan. And I play Plush by Stone Temple Pilots. One of these things is not like the other. I know, but still, this is this makes fun Kathy come out. <laughs> That's great. That's All right. Great. Are we done with this one? Yeah, I hate to be done with this one. All right, so that's going to do it for Plush. Let's move on to the next song, if we can call it that. Is this a song? I don't. It's not. This song is called Wet My Bed. It's a song. You've got some interesting chords that don't quite belong. The rhythm section is almost like the ticking of a clock. But just think back to the beatnik poets of the 50s and, and you get an idea of what this song is supposed to be. It is this kind of poet on stage giving you a mental image and you totally have the image of what he's got going on. This is not, I don't skip this one either. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> beatnik poets from the 50s i skipped them too brad are yeah you- now i will say it. if it was longer i would probably skip this one but it's not very long so i just let it lead right into the next one so i understand they're going for this beatles type of thing on this one this is dumb just cut this i like it. this is worthless it gives the album more personality okay wet my bed is the name of it once again where did mary go i don't know where's my cigarette i don't know he sleeps there sometimes. We done with this one? Wet my bed. <laughs> no, nope, let's listen to the rest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on to actually a good song called Cracker Man. Wait a second, wait a second. What? Before we move on to Cracker Man, 
Yes. This is like iron gland on the Allison Chains. Exactly. Album, right? They each have one of these kind of weird what is going on here kind of songs. And it's not like they're the same song or the same type of song even. It's just that weird little, hey, we're going to give you guys something <laughs> that you were not expecting. And they nailed it. We were not expecting either one of those songs in the middle of this album. Mm-hmm. That that's true. Most fine so far. Iron, I mean, I don't know, man. That's a matchup for the ages. Iron Gland versus Wet My Bed. <laughs> Skippers. Okay, now let's move on to the song called Cracker Man. jump back in with this one and it's almost like they're saying just kidding just <laughs> kidding that was just being silly and it was that song what my bad was just them goofing around like it's the first song that they recorded for this album, the very first song. And that's why when Brendan O'Brien comes in and says, all right, what now? That he's really like, okay, you guys, let's stop screwing around. Let's go actually record a real song. And so I think it's a very nice intro to Cracker Man, which brings it right back into kicking awesome drivers. Yeah, Cracker Man's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. It's it's one of those songs like the first three on the album. It's it's a rocker. You're you're captured by it. Brad, what do you thought? Uh, yeah, it's it's one of my favorite songs on the album. It always has been. I never knew what it was about until I read up on it before we did this. And apparently there was uh, Scott and Eric shared an apartment downtown, and there was a guy that kind of was homeless and lived under the stairwell, and he called himself Cracker Man. Scott would go out and get his coffee, and he'd always bring him coffee and you know a little something to eat, and he would spend time with him and talk to him. And uh, that's where they got the name. I don't know if that's truly what the song's about, but that's where the name came from. That's exactly, I mean, that's almost identical to the even flow story from 10. Eddie Better talked about a homeless man that he befriended and yeah. same same type of story altogether. I recently read Greg Prado's book, uh, his biography on Scott Weiland, and that was kind of a reoccurring theme that a lot of his friends and those that were close to him would bring up was that he was a very compassionate guy. You know, and this was not out of the ordinary for him just to strike up a conversation with somebody he didn't know or somebody that nobody else would probably talk to. He was just a pretty nice guy. I do think it's interesting. In this song, you've got the line, I'm thinking about a boy, his name was Sue. It's got to be a Johnny Cash reference, right? It has to be. Yeah. Cool. I love this one. Mark me down. I'm, I'm excited about this one. Okay. Yep, good one. Moving on to the last song on the album. This song is called Where the River Goes. I love the intro to this song because, as I've mentioned a few times, my favorite Led Zeppelin song is when the levee breaks 
And this is Eric doing his take on that incredible drum intro. And I love what he does with it. I love how when Dean comes in with that wah-wah guitar, it just screams. It gives us something completely different than Led Zeppelin. But the drums, man, way to go. I love it. Finish strong. What do you guys think? I thought it was interesting that this was one of the first songs they ever demoed as Mighty Joe Young. And they said, if you hear that demo, it's 99% what's on the record today. This so I thought that was interesting. It grab me as much as the others. But it's good. I like it. It's good. Yep. It's not it's blood. It's not Wicked Guard. It's not a sex type thing, but it's good. It's not as radio friendly. Exactly. I love my radio friendly hits, man. I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> I, and not only does it come in strong with the drums and the guitar he does, but it, as he does in so many of these songs, he comes in not with word lyrics, but just a, yeah, I love that he's willing to just make some noise. Because like you mentioned, Brad, the words in these lyrics, he doesn't use them so much for their meaning, but for their sound. Because words have their own musicality about them. And even to the to the point of naming things like plush, which the word never gets said in the in the song at all. It is more about how the words sound as a song, and he kills it on this. I love it. Yeah, yeah he does. Very good vocal. This was the first song they wrote once Dean joined the band. So there you go. Okay, so that's going to wrap up the track by track on Core. We have to do just a little bit on the what happens from here story. Yeah, the aftermath. Now, this, when this album came out, it blew up. It is their best-selling album of all time. Then they came along and they did Purple, and they did... I love Purple, by the way. Let's just okay. quickly on Purple. Big Empty, amazing. Yep. Vaseline, incredible. And Interstate Love Song is mind-blowingly good. They were on a trajectory that was going through the roof. I got to say, and, and and it's interesting that, that you say that because for so many, for so long, this was, they, these guys were just the copy of the grunge movement band, right? These guys weren't from Seattle, but they were doing that Seattle thing that those other guys had already done until Purple comes out. And I loved them already. I mean, and so many other folks did that when Purple came out, I was buying the day that it came out. I was ready for it. And I was ready for the next one too. It's just, they established themselves as not just a knockoff band when they came out with Purple and the following album. It's interesting that in 94, just to kind of show you the difference, because there were so many, so many folks saying that these guys were just a cheap knockoff. 1994, Rolling Stone, same issue. The critics say Core is the worst album of the year. The fans <laughs> that it is the best new album of the year. That's fantastic. Yeah. Strong feelings both ways. Right? I mean, if, if I got to please the critics or I got to please the fans, I'm going to want to please the fans. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know what Scott Weiland attributed to the creativity that he felt on Purple? The Big H. Heroin. Is what opened his mind to the creativity that appeared on the Purple Album. The last stop in 1993 of the Butthole Surfers Tour. Uh -huh. 
He tried heroin in the back room of a hotel in New York City, and he said he felt a golden glow. Sounds very similar to the Lane Staley story with the old couple of episodes. Yeah. Graduated from smoking heroin to injecting it. You know, in 94, Purple's out, hit after hit after hit, selling tons of albums. He is now addicted to heroin. In 95, they come out with Dancing Days, the Led Zeppelin song that was awesome. Also in 95, two days after getting out of rehab, he is arrested for possession of cocaine and heroin. His wife bails him out, but at a stoplight, he jumps out of the car, runs away, goes to where Courtney Love is, and they spend the next several days shooting heroin together. Yeah, he was dope sick. I mean, we, we talked about it when we talked about Nikki Six about how when you just go a little while without the heroin, you get physically ill. You get bad physically ill. And so when his, was his wife that bailed him out? I believe it was his wife. When she was driving him away, he was so dope sick that when she refused to take him to get a hit, he decided, I'm going to jump out of the car in order to to find a cure for what ails me. So the Stone Temple Pilots scrapped the whole 1996 tour because he was completely addicted to heroin. He had no ability to go out and tour and sing and perform. And then in 1998, he's arrested in a New York City housing project and he spends five months in jail. This is one of the lead singers for one of the biggest bands of the 90s. He's smoking crack and injecting in a housing project. So in 2002, Matt Sorum, Duff McKagan, Slash, Dave Kushner have created a super band. They're looking for a singer, which I heard at the time, they really wanted Billy Idol, which is interesting. But they hired Scott Weiland to sing for them and it became Velvet Revolver and they put two great albums out. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I mean, you that'd be another interesting comparison is to compare Mad Season to Velvet Revolver. The bands that the lead singers of the bands were preparing today went to after uh, they lost their place in the bands that they were in. That's interesting. Both yeah. of them had some amazingly good songs, good music, but things were changing at this time. This was when people had stopped buying albums and started downloading songs, which meant he wasn't getting money from album sales and he wasn't getting money from record companies because they weren't getting money from album sales. And so this decision to join Velvet Revolver to him was more of a financial decision than an artistic decision. They said He said they sent him a bunch of songs and he said, this, this sounds like nothing I would sing. So they're like, okay, well, here's some others. He's like, okay, well, I got, I got to have money. You know, I got to, I got to be able to pay child support. I've got to be able to live the lifestyle that I've grown accustomed to. And so Velvet Revolver, as good as it was, was something he did for the money. Wow. And then after doing it for eight years, kind of running into the same problem with the band members of, you know, like, why aren't you doing better than you, you are? He was like, ASTP, can I come back? Yeah. So I heard about this, right? <laughs> this is an interesting story to me. So he starts showing up late to concerts and Slash and Duff and Matt Sorum are like, oh, you know, like PTSD, Axel, right? right. <laughs> so as soon as he starts showing up late, they their red flags go up. They can't take it anymore. And so they fire him in 2008. At that same time, he was wanting to kind of do STP and Velvet Revolver, and they were not good with that. But he just continually, continually, continually had drug problems. 
When he was interviewed by Esquire magazine in 2008, he actually explained why he still had drug problems, right? I thought this was super insightful. They said, why haven't you been able to quit? And here's his quote. I never wanted to quit. If you have a heroin addict who doesn't want to quit and everybody in the world wants you to quit, it ain't going to work. It's not going to happen. I saw him just after the release of his book in 2011, interviewing with Howard Stern. He was late for that show too, by the way. But when he's talking, he does not seem to be under the influence of anything. He's intelligent. He's coherent. He's, I think he's, uh, if anything, he's struggling with the fact that Howard Stern keeps interrupting him and keeps trying to take him down the dark paths, like basically encouraging him to, you know, man, your life sucks. You, you had to do these drugs. You had to do these things. And just, I mean, just awful, awful stuff. And then, gosh, questions him in detail about the rape he had when he was a child. I mean, it's just, it's horrible because he starts off, I mean, Scott Weiland seems upbeat and happy. And by the end, he's just staring at the floor. (laughs) I'm marking this, I'm marking this spot. You can catch it on YouTube. Howard Stern interview with Scott Weiland. This is where Scott Weiland turned back to drugs and ultimately takes his own life. Wow. Okay. But you mentioned something and Howard Stern asked this question, because he brought up Kurt Cobain and he was like, you ever think about that? He's like, heck yeah, I thought about that. And I think that goes back to what you're talking about. Of There's not a reason to quit. There's a reason not to quit. Yeah. He said that uh, I don't really understand why people keep trying to take this away from me. It's the only thing that keeps me from blowing my head off. And he's got a family and he's got children. I just, this just kills me. So, listen to this. So in May of 2015, you can see this on YouTube as well. He's playing a concert with his new band called Scott Weiland and the Wildabouts. They're playing at Columbus in Columbus, Ohio, and he has the most apathetic, uninspired, terrible concert. I mean, watching him sing Vaseline, it's awful. He's definitely under the influence of something. He can barely stand up. He can barely stand up. He's slurring his words. He's not singing the right words. Yeah. It's not good. When Matt Storm talks about when Scott Weiland started showing up late and started struggling, he said when Axel would show up finally, he would sound fantastic. Scott would show up late and he would suck. And that was one of the reasons, too, that they had to fire him. But on December 3rd, 2015, Scott Weiland and the Wildabouts go to Bloomington, Minnesota. The show was actually canceled because they didn't sell enough tickets to have the concert. They sold less than 100 tickets. Oh, so he goes back in the back of the bus he goes to sleep the guys get up the next day or whatever and they're they're going to go check out the mall of america they're going to go scout out town or whatever and they had sort of understood that if scott's sleeping you don't wake him up and his wife called and said go wake him up and when they went in there he of course was dead another tragic loss to heroin it would be interesting to decide i think between lane staley's death which was horrible and tragic and compared to scott wyland's death i think scott wyland is worse because there's children involved to take us further down into the deep dark depths when 
they decided to replace Scott in the band. They picked the lead singer of Lincoln Park, Chester Bennington. So Chester Bennington, he had a happy ending, though, correct? No. <laughs> you setting me up here? Yes, I'm teeing you up for that. So he's on vacation with his wife and his family. Just like you're talking about the, what is the saddest of these sad tales. Um, he says, I'm going to go back to the house and do some work. 9 a.m. July 20th, 2017. Next morning, housekeeper comes in, sees him, sees him hanging from the I wish for anybody else who's out there who might be feeling those feelings that you don't have to be sad. There are things to do that you can address the issue with. Just talk to somebody as, a, as opposed to ending it all. Because I think most of the time, if you ask the question, would you rather be gone or would you rather just not be sad? The answer is you just rather not be sad. There are medications, there are therapies, there are other things that you can do to address the feelings that you have. Interestingly, Bennington died on what would have been Chris Cornell's 53rd birthday two months after he had also committed suicide. So on that note, let's do our final judgment. <laughs> well, here, I got, I got a little bit of a happy note. Okay. Okay. I sent you a song earlier today talking about the, the kids and the legacy. Noah Wyland is now... 20, I think he's about 20 years old. He has done some music with Slash's Kid, but if you go to Noah Wyland on Spotify, he doesn't have a lot of followers, like 700, but if you listen to his music, you can hear Scott, and it's some good music. It is some quality stuff. Go check out Noah Wyland on Spotify and catch just a glimpse of the legacy that Scott left Okay, guys, we have now finished with Stone Temple Pilots Core. Yep. We have gone through Dirt by Allison Chains. Yes. We are now bringing back James Buckley, who went through that history and that album with us, to give his opinion on which is better, Dirt or Core. James, you're on, man. First off, let me set the stage. The early 90s was a pretty heady time for a music lover. Every week it seemed like there was something new and fabulous coming out and I couldn't wait to listen to it. I bought the new Stone, I bought Core when it came out and I also got Dirt. And I really liked them both. I don't think Stone Temple Pilots is an amazing band, but Core was their first album. You could tell it was the sound of a band still trying to find its musical feet. There's some great songs, but nothing compared to what you would hear on later Stone Temple Pilots albums like the Purple Album and things after that, the band would really develop into an amazing band. That said, Dirt is just such an awesome, heavy, beautiful, dark masterpiece that I don't think it can be topped. This was Alice in Chains' second full-length album. They had time to fully develop their sound, so they were a little bit ahead of the race compared to Stomp Ripple Pilots. I will never pass up a chance to listen to Core. I do think it's great, but if forced to choose between the two, I'm going to go Dirt every time. All right, Brad, we are dying to know your final judgment between Alice in Chains' Dirt and Stone Temple Pilots' Core. The floor is yours, brother. Okay, so, you know, the thing that I keep telling myself is this is a debut album, and there's just not that many good debut albums like that. There's only a handful of them out there that have ever been like that. However, I think that Alice in Chains was in their wheelhouse, you know, in their complete prime when Dirt came out. It's a flawless album. They really both are, and I probably have to with Dirt. If I had to pick one of them, it's 1A and 1.1. Wow. 1 and 1A, you know, it's it's they're right there. 
but I think I probably have to go to Durham and probably listen to it just a little bit more. But man, it's not by very much of a margin. That's what I'd have to go with. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Jason, what's your what are your thoughts? Okay. So when we started out this, when when you said, Hey, we gotta celebrate the 30th anniversary of these two. Actually, you said let's celebrate the 29th anniversary, and we said now let's push it one more year. I, in my mind, was like, I had Stone Temple Pilots. I had several Stone Temple Pilots albums. I didn't ever really get into Alice in Chains when they were popular in, in the 90s. But since I've dived into this, my appreciation and respect and enjoyment of Alice in Chains has increased greatly. I mean, the songs that I listen to are, are really great songs and Dirt was awesome. But I'm a feel good guy. And there's a lot of songs about drugs on Dirt that just don't really hit me right. Now their good songs are really good. But for me, I'm going more, I just I just lean more towards the top down, turn it up, STP album, of course. Lo- I mean, these songs you just crank up and you sing along, you're having a great time. So mark me down, spike the football. For me, it's core Stone Temple Pilots D. Okay, so James is on dirt. So we got one for dirt, one for core, two for dirt. for dirt. Yep. So now it's up to me. Okay, where you at? Let's hear it. Okay. So both of these songs were on heavy rotation with me. As I said, I might've gotten them both from the same Columbia house order. They may have both come to me for a penny one day (laughs) and I wore them both out. They are both phenomenal albums from beginning to end. There are songs that I would not describe quite as skippers for the most part, but songs that are less good than some of the other songs in the album. I agree with you, Dirt. So many amazing songs. I mean, you, you, the entire first side is one of the best first sides of all first sides. And then when you go to the second side, yeah, you get heavy into the songs that are about the spiral downward of drug addiction. And some of them are really good. I mean, Angry Chair is a fantastic song, but some of them are, they don't give me enough to keep me churning through time after time after time like the songs on Core do. Core, I can listen to from the beginning to the end. I don't even skip wet my bed. I listen (laughs) to all of it and love all of it every single time and have for 30 years now. And so I've got to say, as much as I love Dirt and I love it a lot, Core is the winner for me. So we have, gentlemen, a top. A push. So... A plush, if you will. I think that this is pro. <laughs> Did you really just say that? <laughs> so I think this is the time that I have to say, let's do the Shirley Showcase because I got my neighbor, who is the biggest Allison Chains fan of all time that I've ever met in my life, to give me her opinion on this. And apologies for how this may sound. We were in the middle of a get together where there were other people talking, but hopefully uh, her opinion comes through clearly. Okay, so without further ado, this is my dear friend, Kristen Pirazak to tell us her thoughts on Core versus Dirt. How does someone who has named their child after the lead singer of Alice in Chains pick Core over Dirt? I was a little bit late into the game because I was younger. In 1992, I was 10 years old. So I had older sisters. So I didn't kind of come into the grunge scene until I was a little bit older. 
when I was listening to all of these albums. Nevermind, Dirt. Core was the teenage angst for me versus Nevermind. Dead and Bloated was that song for me. My coming of age of music was all happening at once, even though it was a little bit late for the time. Jar of Flies was my big awakening Alice in Chains moment. So, you know when you love a band, you, you fall in love with what they've got at the time, and then you go back to their old stuff. So to me, I was going backwards to dirt. But like me, when I fell in love with Alice in Chains, it was more Jar of Flies. Dirt was okay. But when I think at the same time, I was listening to Core and Tin. So it was the song Wet My Bed from Core that reminded me of something off Vitalogy. So to me, like I, I almost put Core and Vitalogy at the same time, which I was loving Pearl Jam from Tin. So I was listening to Vitalogy with just this extreme interest because I love Tin so much. And then I'm having Core at the same time. So I think all of that just to me was overriding my love for Alice in Chains. Lane State, like Lane Staley is almost a separate entity to me than Alice in Chains. Because Alice in Chains was a Jerry Cantrell, Lane Staley compilation. Album-wise, core, for sure. Like I can listen to that nonstop. Dirt almost makes me think of the hair bands a little bit. And I was not into the hair band scene. Like career-wise, Alice in Chains far surpasses Stone Temple Pilots. Facelift and Jar of Flies and Unplugged. Lane Staley was the vocalist of all vocalists of all of the grunge era. All of the grunge era. Nobody compares to Lane Staley. I mean, you could never pair Scott Weiland with Lane Staley, ever. Lane Staley holds the torch. He was this quiet, quiet soul, and then when he sang, just his voice came out. I was the Lane Staley fan. You know, for somebody who loves dirt, she sure loves core a little bit more. Well, it's it's all about when you get the music, man. I mean, when you hear it and when you fall in love with certain things, I, I think that's, I mean, we've we've had it happen to us many times before. It's the nostalgia factor, if you will. Absolutely. I think it hit her right on this one, but it's, it's just kind of crazy to think that she's so much a bigger fan of that album than dirt. Wow. Yeah. Kristen, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Kristen. There you go. Looks like we've got the tiebreaker. Sorry, Louisiana. Oklahoma 3, Louisiana 2. <laughs> the Oklahoma, <laughs> the Oklahoma <laughs> pick is core. Guys, Keep my mouth shut on that one. <laughs> guys, fans, please let us know your thoughts. Who are you picking? Is it Are you picking Allison Chains at Dirt? Are you picking STP at Core? Who do you think has the better full body of work? Let us know your thoughts. You can hit us up on Twitter, at Shirley Podcast, on Facebook, at Shirley Podcast. You can email us, shirleypodcast at gmail.com. Guys, thank you for listening to each and every one of these episodes. We hope you loved it. We will be back next week with special guest Andy Fry to talk about his book, 90 Days in the 90s, and falls right in with what we're listening to right now. I'm excited to do that. Brad, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for coming in and weighing in on this with us. Thanks for having me. So good to meet you. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. I'll do it again anytime you need my help. So, I so. really thought you were going to line up with Stone Temple Pilots. 
I thought I was too before we did this, but uh, I just kind of started thinking about it and I'd look at the signs and just, I don't know. It's very, very close though. Oh.